So good morning everyone. Good morning everyone on screen. Uh, the title of this talk this morning is The Non-Judgmental and Discerning Mind. And the reason why I chose it as a topic is that some people, a few people, have actually been um, addressing with me uh, in the Zen group um, the dilemma around what they experience of what they read in some of the sutras and readings and the fundamental practices of, of Zen and how you actually apply it to everyday life, particularly around one person around um, how to, what's the Zen view of evil in the world, you know? What is the Zen perspective on dealing with unethical behaviour you see in institutions or other people and so on? Um, we just, are we just non-judgmental mm -hmm. of harmful behaviours in the world, whether it's coming from ourselves or from others? Mm -hmm. Where does Zen sit with all of that? Um, just some of the real basic aspects of practice, you know, the reason why we all come here and do this is that we realise, we come to some realisation in our life, somewhere along the line, that we're, we're reacting to life events like other people, circumstances, so on, in quite a reactive, emotive kind of way. Um, and instead of just doing it automatically and continuing to automatically do that, um, something in us goes, hold on, maybe there's a better way, you know, do I really have to be automatic in my reactions and get angry here and stressful there and, and have this, this sort of uh, much more tumultuous way of relating to stimulus that comes my way, particularly when they're unpleasant ones, as uh, Joker refers to in that cocoon of pain. And our whole life then can be a, a reactive way of being in the world. Joko emphasises very much a lot through her teachings um, the, the reaction of aversion, avoidance, aversion to the unpleasant. That was a very strong feature of her teachings that goes all the way through it. The other side of it is the craving and the grasping, you know, the the reacting by wanting more of something, you know, that you, you that you expect. So that grasping, rejecting, you know, aversion dynamic it is the reactivity that we're caught up in. And um, the more we're caught up in it, the more it perpetuates this sense of me, 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 you know, I, mine, um, that I've got to sort of protect and hold on to and defend, you know, criticise others, etc. And so what brings us to practice is that we, somewhere along the line, we, we go, hmm, that's not working very well. What is another way? And it's through meditation, lots of it, retreats, ethical guidelines as guardrails to our behaviour, um, containing us, etc. That we we do find another way and and that other way is not to do nothing um, it's 
a shift or a transformation from a reactive way of being in the world to what you might call a responsive way of being in the world or a creative way of being in the world. And um, a few words, uh, a few phrases, which really encapsulates the whole package of Zen practice as you apply it in the world, is the um, the uh, the words, the guiding words of the um, Zen Peace Fellowship, which was um, started by uh, uh, Bernie Glassman Roshi, who was a Dharma brother of Joko's, mainly established in New York. And those principles are uh, not knowing, bearing witness, and compassionate action. Right. So not knowing, you know, just entering into that non-conceptual realm where you don't have a view, not or you're not attaching to views. Mm -hmm. Bearing witness, where just, just to see exactly what's actually happening in a situation. It might be family, might be work, politics, whatever. What's really happening right now? Mm -hmm. And then, but it doesn't stop there. Compassionate action. Compassionate action means that you needed to shift from not knowing, witnessing, to making a discerning judgment, assessment of a situation, and then this is what we need to do. Not just compassionate action, but, but wise action. Um, I think where a lot of the confusion around this lies is a lot of the sutras really emphasise um, the unconditional, you know, the absolute, you know, the, the emptiness, you know, the, the non-conceptual way of viewing life. Um, the great way is not difficult, just avoid picking and choosing. You know, the Heart Sutra, um, as Thich Nhat Hanh critiques it, um, says emptiness is form and form is emptiness, but it's really all about emptiness. Mm -hmm. So much of the Zen teachings, these are teachings focused around emptiness. And it is important that we um, have a, a glimpse, you know, that we're able to glimpse that not knowing, non-conceptual, just seeing life as it is experience. But then as all of the main teachers in the Zen tradition have said, you, you just stay there and you, that's a form of delusion. Mm -hmm. To stay stuck in, that, in the absolute is a form of delusion. They, they emphasise it over and over again. The person who wants to be on the mountain peak, but they, they don't come down into the valley or into the town and then apply that kind of insight into their everyday life. Even in the way that Zen um, was popularised popularized in, in the West through um, D.T. Suzuki, um, one of the main comments he, he said about Zen, which is often quoted, is that Satori is the alpha and omega of Zen training. Now, I know what, he, I know what he's saying by that, that there's an, there's an insight into this unconditional, non-conceptual experience of suchness, which is important. But I can, um, I can see an essay or a book 
brewing up inside of me, where what I want to emphasise <coughs> is that transformation of character is the alpha and the omega of Zen. To the degree that these experiences of suchness, you know, seeing the unconditional, have some impact on the way that we live as a person and transform our character, fine. Um, but it's that permeation of how that experience of no self or the absolute actually permeates the character and tra transforms the character in everyday life is really the Alpha and Omega of Zen. They're all of these teachings can make us kind of sense that the absolute is the absolute. Mm -hmm. um, and when you, when, you, um, when you look at teachers who come from um, Asian Buddhist traditions where it's, it's not new, um, it's permeated their culture for centuries and centuries and centuries and they've had to integrate it into everyday life and politics and things like that. You often see what I think is more of a maturity around understanding the practice than sometimes you get in, in Western countries. But Thich Nhat Hanh in particular says that people too, too easily want to jump into the absolute as though they're kind of showing off their insight. Mm -hmm. And he says, don't, don't just jump into it. You know, don't, don't try and escape the everyday world, the relative world where things are measured and it's right and wrong and judgments and assessments and so on. Let's don't jump into there thinking, oh, I've got it now. Mm -hmm. another, another example of it is from Tibetan Buddhism. And this made me laugh when I really heard this because so, it, it sounds so un-Buddhist. But um, apparently the, the Dalai Lama was asked a question in the audience once, um, how do you deal with difficult people? You know, well, how do you deal with unethical people? And he said, well, we have a saying in, in Tibet, um, first break their legs and then show them compassion. <laughs> in other words, um, see, I, I find that funny because it's so unexpected from the Dalai Lama. But it's again, it's an indication of how Buddhism has permeated those cultures, just like you know, someone commits a crime, oh, do you know, they couldn't help it all, it was just all these conditions arose, do you know, and, and, and you've got to be kind to them. It's kind of like, no, it's like you've got to make some discerning action. Someone who harms other people, they've got to be contained. They've got to be put in a prison so they, 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 can't, they can't hurt people anymore or whatever. But then, once that containment and that boundary is made, then it's an act towards like rehabilitation, inclusion, you know, um, then coming back in, into society as a non-harming person, right? Um, but it's not this kind of wishy-washy, unconditional, just love everyone, it'll all be okay. Mm -hmm. Sometimes that works. Some, there is a place for that. And where that comes through, like in my profession, the profession of some of the people in our group in counselling and, and psychotherapy is Carl Rogers, who was one of the great founders of counselling, had this term of um, creating unconditional positive regard for people. 
and that was his guiding principle to support people with empathy. And it permeates many different um, counselling methods. You know, it's like a foundation principle of it. It's true. It's, it's very important. But if that's all you did in, that's only, the only thing you did as a counsellor, as a psychotherapist, you just sat there and you showed unconditional positive regard, it wouldn't be enough, usually. It's got to be followed through with challenge and containment and setting boundaries, etc. Sometimes it works. Um, a friend of mine from Melbourne from years ago who was a Buddhist practitioner and psychologist said she had a, she was filling in for someone who was away and, and this, um, this patient came to the clinic who was a notoriously difficult patient with a borderline personality disorder. And one of her male colleagues before said, oh, you've got to be really careful with her. She's you know, really difficult. You've got to have a hard time with her. So my friend took her into the office and just listened to her and just practised being loving and kind to her and she came out of the office and the guy came over and said, gee, she came out of there really different today. She was quite pleasant. What, what did you do? She said, I just loved her. Sometimes it works. Sometimes that in itself works, but it doesn't always work. Um, sometimes there's other, some kind of tougher kind of response which is needed. Like in Zen. Hit over the head. Right? <laughs> Shout. Wake up. Mm -hmm. Where the problem lies, again, it comes back to concepts and words. We use the word absolute and relative. We use the word unconditional and conditional. And as soon as we use the words, we create two different, we create two different worlds, really. And we say, oh yeah, but they're all one. Yeah, but we've created two different worlds. That really, there's no absolute and relative. It's just this. Mm -hmm. There's no absolute and there's no relative. They are simply words to describe different aspects of experience, like the head and the tail of a coin, you know, mm -hmm. or the head and the tail of a snake. Mm -hmm. But there's no, there's no. You can't separate the two. Mm -hmm. But to be able to see into the unconditional, to know what unconditional love is, right, and use that as a base to move forward in life is really important. Like as a parent, um, the owner of a dog that has special needs or a child that needs special needs, you know, you can, as a parent, you're going to have this, this unconditional love for them. You want the best for them. And you, mothers and fathers know that, what what it is to experience in that. But it means you're going to have to deal with the difficult behaviours in a firm way at times, aren't you? Um, that's, what, that's the way the unconditional love expresses itself in tough love sometimes, as well as soft love. So these, these things go together. They can't be separated out. And so to come back to the title of my talk, The Non-Judgmental and Discerning Mind. Right? There's a way, even in secular mindfulness, they all define it as being non-judgmental. Mm -hmm. They want to jump into the absolute again. But 
when it comes down to actually meditating and actually living your life, you need to see your experience through one lens and then the other. Mm -hmm. So you need a way when you're sitting there of just, don't know mind, witnessing self-centred thoughts and feelings coming and going, right? so not being reactive to them, just letting them be there. But at the same time, when a really angry thought, emotion comes up, um, there is discernment there as well. It's like, this doesn't feel wholesome. This doesn't feel okay, you know. What, what's the delusion that it's based on, mm -hmm, maybe? So, yeah, it's like, don't know mind, witness, but then there's a, the discernment that this is okay and this is not okay. And then a course of action occurs, whether it's relating to ourselves or it's relating to some situation in the world. So, don't get caught in the absolute and don't get caught in the relative. Uh -huh. Then brings you back to um, a state of flow in your life, a state of spontaneity, so just being in the, the flow of the sensation of experience and the moment coming and going. It's very important to get back into and experience that because that is the basic essence of life. It's like a stream moving all the time. And when you're in, in that flow, there's a sense of ease with life. Mm -hmm. um, but it's in that sense of kind of ease uh, that, and calmness and with, with, with good heart that we actually make the decisions and the actions in our life. That's the place to, to make them from. If we make them from a, a reactive, self-centred um, position where our uh, actions in the world are probably going to be the poor decisions, poor actions that create harm and disconnection and so on. So that's how it all fits together. <laughs>